Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Kings chapter 16. Be careful, those of you that have allergies of the dust, when you're opening that part of your Bible there. I have a, I have a real serious bone to pick with the people who planned a wedding reception on the day of the Grizzly Tool annual tent sale. You should feel really bad. So if if the groom and the pastor are a little bit late, you'll know where we are. (laughs) About a year ago, uh, my wife got a scooter. She loves her scooter, loves to ride through Ferndale, loves to give the motorcycle wave to the banditos. You know, you know what the motorcycle wave is? You're driving along, another motorcycle comes this way. You, all the motorcycle people go, you know. You know. We're all cool. You don't go. I don't know why car people don't do that. You know, wave to everybody. Hey, I got a car. Hey, you know. It's really great when they, they kind of see a helmet coming and they get ready and they start to wave and then they realize it's a scooter. Because the, mo- the real motorcycle people don't really wave at scooter people, you know what I'm saying? But she loves her scooter. And about eight months ago, I was supposed to change the oil. <laughs> In a new motor, you're supposed to change the oil after a couple of hundred miles. And so this week, I finally decided it was probably time to change the oil. But of course, the manual that came with the buddy scooter wasn't real complete. Um, You know, somewhere in some third world country, they're knocking off real scooters and uh, making manuals for you. And so I opened the the book to see where is the oil plug. Because I look under the motor and I saw two likely suspects. But I'm, I'm, I'm just old enough to realize, don't pull that nut off without really finding out what you're doing. Because you might be draining the transmission for all I know. And I did not want that to happen. And so I looked and I looked. We called the fellow that we bought it from and, uh, you know, left a message, you know, one of those things. And and finally I looked and I looked and I I considered and I thought, well, I'm going to loosen this one up a little bit. And if what comes out looks like what's on the end of the dipstick, I'm probably in business. So sure enough, I, I got the oil changed. The oil in an engine is absolutely vital to the operation of that engine. If you don't get the oil right, your engine will die, and it will be a bad death. We're coming today to a topic as part of this, this, this topic of what are, how are you thinking that is absolutely vital to your thought life. Therefore, it is absolutely vital to, your, to you, the behavior of your life and to how you consider life. And that aspect of thinking is how you think about God. Now, I'm not talking about God in a saving sense. Uh, we've already spoken of Christ as our Savior this morning. I'm talking to folks who have already believed in Christ as their Savior. They already have a concept of God which says, 
you know, God is, uh, is God and, and I am not. And he had to send his son to take on human flesh, to shed his blood so that my sin could be cleansed. And I'm, so I'm talking this morning with, with folks already in mind of that aspect of God. If you don't understand that aspect of God, I would love to sit down with you and consider it this morning in detail to help you. But once we have that aspect of God down, there is another aspect that we must grasp if we are going to live life effectively for Him and enjoyably for ourselves. Today's message is really a continuation of last week's message when we learned these truths. The difficulties of life are allowed by God. I have no doubt that the things that I have spoken of already today or the things that you are going through are no surprises to God. Some things in life He causes, some things in life He allows. It is true God could make all of those things never happen, all of those hard things. It is true, but God does allow them And God does allow them for a purpose. The difficulties of life are purposeful. God is not out of control. God is not mean. God is not capricious. So whatever he allows, he allows for a purpose. The difficulties of this life must be handled in God's way. And we started last week looking at James chapter 1 and how God says we need to see them as purposeful, see that he's trying to mature us. And we ended our sermon last week looking at the Apostle Paul and how he handled his difficulties in a godly way and consequently lived in the joy and peace and the victory of God. Now today, I want to look at somebody who did not handle the biggest trial of his life in a righteous way, and that person is Elijah. Now we're going to start in chapter 16 with the person of Elijah and look at a few verses to understand the world in which he lived. So uh, we're in 1 Kings 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. How would you like to have that attached to your name? There were a lot of kings who did a lot of wicked things, and he says, this guy was more wicked than all of them. Verse 31, And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing, for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. In other words, here is a Jewish king who marries a woman who is not a Jew and who worships idols, the idol that we commonly call Baal, and he worships Baal. Here's a a, a Jewish king worshiping an idol. Verse 32, Then he set up an altar. He made a place of worship for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Wow! He made God mad. He made him more mad than all of them. In his days, 
Kiel of Bethel, Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abram, his firstborn, with his youngest son, Sigeb. He set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, just, as a, just to set the stage, how wicked is the place in which you live? Is it more wicked than everybody who's lived before you? Probably not. It's pretty wicked. How hard is it to live as a believing child of God where you live? Well, it's challenging. There's no doubt about it. Current political climate, decisions seem to be consistently made that don't go in a Christian way. Christians tend to go, oh boy, it's bad, it's tough, it's hard. Well, I just want you to know that as we consider this example from ancient days, it was bad, it was tough, it was hard. Elijah wasn't a guy born into a country where everybody goes to church every Sunday and and a couple of times a year they all go down to Jerusalem and have a seven day long festival and worship God and praise Him. That is not what was going on. In fact, I, I think there's a clear inference here that God was angry. And so God set some things in motion. And I hope you remember that when we get toward the end of this story, because I'll give you a clue. Elijah got his eyes off of God's purposes, and it messed him up. Verse seven, now chapter 17. And Elijah, here he is, he just, boom, he just drops on the spot. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, Ahab's that wicked king, remember? As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew or rain these years except at my word. Now, we all know what a drought is about. But in a society with no irrigation and no electricity to pump water out of the ground, when you have a drought, then eventually you don't have food. And when you don't have food, things get really bad. And here's a fella going up to a wicked king and saying, here's the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is, no rain except when I say so. Now, Elijah didn't say that arrogantly. God told him to go say that. How do you suppose Elijah felt? (laughs) Here's a king that's the most wicked king anybody can remember. And God says, Elijah, go down and talk to the king and tell him that no rain's going to come unless you say so. Put yourself in that place. Now, is that challenging or easy? Well, obviously, that's very challenging. But Elijah did it. He didn't argue with God. He went down there and did it. Verse 2, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Get away from here. And turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Okay, now remember, Elijah had never had food delivered by birds before. And God says, I'll tell you what, you go over here, and you just told the king there's not going to be any rain, but I'm telling you, if you go over here, you're going to drink out of that stream, and the birds are going to deliver food to you. 
Is that challenging or easy? Well, that's, that's okay, God. That, that's a faith issue, isn't it? Verse 5, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Okay? Comes to another challenging time. God's instruction required faith. God's provision required faith. Now verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord God lives, I do not have any bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. (laughs) God apparently didn't tell this woman in an audible voice, Hey, there's a fella coming that you're supposed to feed. So you're Elijah, and you're walking along, and you go, hey, there's a widow. Maybe she's the one. And you go, hey, would you feed me? And she goes, man, I got enough food to, I'm going to eat it and die. So you're thinking, hello, God. Did you tell her or not? Right? Get your mind around this, folks. Sometimes we look back at Elijah, and we go, oh, Elijah, he walked around, did miracles, and everything was great and easy and no big deal. Hey, he was a fellow just like you. In fact, James says he was a man with passions just like us. And yet still he prayed and did what God wanted. So this is a challenge. This is a a significant thing. Verse 13, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Boy, remember that when we get to the end of his story. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make a small cake from it first and bring it to me, and afterward make for, <laughs> make for yourself some for yourself and your son. Okay, lady, feed me first, and I promise there will be enough for you and your son. Now the challenge is on her, but it's also on him. Have you ever had to deliver some tough news to people? Look, I'm telling you, here's what God says. Hey, that's tough. You're going to look a widow right in the eye in a time of famine and say, feed me first. Verse uh, 14. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. There's going to be a miraculous supply. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her... And he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Verse 17, Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick, and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So so she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come here to bring my son to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took 
him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and he laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Oh Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, Oh Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room to the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Think with me again about Elijah. Okay, first of all, go talk to the king. Give him bad news. Now go camp out, drink from the brook, eat from the birds. Now go down to this widow, tell her to feed you first, and now her son's going to die. Do you think you might be just a little tempted to go, Hello, God. You bet you'd be tempted to do that because you've done that in your life. And Elijah did that a little bit. He goes, God, no, no, not this. And he cried out and said, God, please heal, please heal. And God did. Wow. And it came to pass after many days, chapter 18, verse 1. It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. Now, this would be the northern kingdom, okay? That's why he's talking about Samaria. The kingdom is divided and so on. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. So King Ahab has a house manager named Obadiah, who's a godly man. For so it was, verse 4, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go into the land, to all the springs of water, and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive, so that we will not have to kill any of the livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went the other way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him, and he fell on his face, and he said, Is that you, my lord Elijah? And Elijah answered him, It is I. Go tell your master. Go tell the wicked king Ahab. Elijah is here. (laughs) So Obadiah said, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from that kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, Go tell your master Elijah is here. It shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the Spirit of God will carry to you to a place I do not know so that when I go and tell Ahab then he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from youth. Look, I'm a godly man. Don't put me in a place of danger. Verse 13. Was it not reported to my Lord Elijah that What I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid 150 men of the Lord's prophets in a cave, and I fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. He will kill me. 
And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts live before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him. I'm not fooling with you here. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Okay, now again, you're Elijah. You know the king wants to kill you. And God says, go talk to the king. Challenging or easy? Challenging, I think. Verse 17. And it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and, and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat in at Jezebel's table. There's Mount Carmel. See that white dot? It's right in that neighborhood on that little piece of land that pokes up into the Mediterranean. He says, get all of Israel, get them together up to Mount Carmel. Now, unless you're thinking of Mount Baker when I use the word mountain, a mountain in Israel is like a mountain in Pennsylvania. Okay, they have ski resorts on hills that, that we don't even give names to. Like, like the hill that I live on would be a mountain. Okay, so it's a, it's a tall place. It's a tall spot, but it's not like way up in the mountains. It's a place where people could gather and they could, they could come and see what's going to go on. So Ahab sent, verse 20, for all the children of Israel, and he gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal and him. And Elijah came to all the people and he said, How long will you falter between two opinions? How long will you be divided between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the word, but the people answered him not a word, which means they're still stuck straight on the middle of the fence. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare another bull and I will lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. They went, okay, going to have some proof here. Verse 25, now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourself and prepare it first for you are many and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Verse 26, so they took the bull which was given them and they prepared it and they called on the name of Baal from morning and until uh, morning, even until noon saying, oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped up on the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them. And he said, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he's busy, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud, and they cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances, till the blood gushed out on them. Verse 29. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. 
Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order. He cut the bull in pieces. He laid it on the wood, and he said, Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice. Now, it wasn't burnt yet. It was going to be burnt. And pour it on the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. They did it a second time. Do it a third time. They did it a third time until the water ran all around the altar and he filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Elijah got this very right. He said, God, this is about you demonstrating yourself to this world. It's not about me. Verse 37. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, or Jehovah, He is God. Jehovah, He is God. And I get the impression that they kept chanting that. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down to the ground and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went and looked, and he said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So Elijah said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins, and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. What an amazing, miraculous, incredible time. And now we come to chapter 19. In fact, let me, what have I got next here? There's Jezreel. About 20 miles. It's about 20 miles. And he ran ahead of the chariot. Okay? Don't expect your pastor to do that. And Ahab told Jezebel, okay, Jezreel is the town, Jezebel is the woman, okay? Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and, and also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Remember, she's the one who brought Baal worship in. These are her guys. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this same time. 
And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He ran all the way down to that town called Beersheba. It's about a hundred miles. Okay? Now, stop with me just for a second. And let's recap because something doesn't add up. Elijah had delivered a message of condemnation to an evil king. He had eaten food delivered by ravens. He had eaten food made by a woman he didn't know. He raised a child from the dead. He delivered God's rebuke to the false religion of an evil king and in the process turned the nation back to God. Now he is threatened by the queen and he runs scared for his life. Look at verse 3 again. When the queen said to them, I'm going to kill you, he arose and ran for his life. Really? It seems to me he should have went down to the castle and went, Hey, Queenie, bring it on. Do you remember what happened on Mount Carmel? The same God is here. Let's go, you and me. But he runs for his life. Whoa, I'm scared. Whoa, she's going to kill me. What in the world? He ran like I did when I was in the fourth grade and two fifth graders promised to meet me after school and give me a beating for turning them into the teacher for stealing my ball at the playground time. And I'm telling you, I ran ahead of them all the way home. He was scared for his life. Now look at verse 4. It gets worse. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Now, from Beersheba, he walked one more day's walk into the wilderness, which in their parlance would have probably been another 20 miles. Okay? He walked a day's walk into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. And he said, It is enough! Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Think I'll go eat some worms. You ever say that to your kids when they got into a real pity party? Now, what do you call this right here? I call it depression leading to suicidal thoughts. And I'm not laughing about that. Elijah is this great man of God and he comes to this particular trial and he just falls apart. Follow me with verse 5 and 7 here. 5 to 7. Then, then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake, we would call it a, a, a small loaf of bread, baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. 
Now let me make a, a passing reference here to something that's very important. Elijah allowed his fear to drive his behavior right into a physical depletion which always depletes your emotional vitality or our emotional vitality. Elijah was physically depleted, but get this, folks. The reason was because he allowed his fear to drive his behavior. We're going to come back to address the fear here in just a minute. But you need to understand something. Many times what people want to call a nervous breakdown, what people want to call the depressive phase of a manic depressive circuit in life, is the breakdown that comes after a sinful motivation drives a person to such an extreme that they hit the wall and they crash physically. But what always comes with a physical crash is an emotional crash as well. What I want to tell you today is the whole business is preceded by a spiritual crash. And the only way to avoid it happening is to fix the spiritual problem. And once it does happen, the spiritual problem has to also be fixed so it won't happen again so you can recover from this. I would not argue for a minute the reality of depression. Depression is absolutely real. But the question is, what is the cause? And I would submit to you that the cause is along this line and along the lines that we'll see in just a minute. I believe there is always a spiritual root to the fruit of depression. And it may be as simple as what we have just talked about. And notice, what is God's solution? What is God's first solution for Elijah? Does God start rebuking Elijah right away? What does he do? Look in verses 5 through 7. The first solution is, take a rest, buddy. Eat some food. Nourish your body. If you're not taking care of your physical body because of the thoughts of your mind, you are sinning because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. To ignore the needs of your body because of some sinful thought pattern is just as wicked uh, as, as anything else you would do. And it leads to worse problems. The beginning of God's solution for his condition was rest and refreshment. If you are allowing fear or pride or some other fleshly motive to drive you to ruin the temple you share with the Holy Spirit, then you are not doing God's will. Now I understand, and even as I thought, as I prepared this message, I understand that there are a handful of times in life when physical, extreme physical exertion is put upon us by God. Um, I would suggest to you that warfare is one of them, uh, followed closely by giving birth. And, And I don't know of anything more taxing than giving birth, and thankfully I haven't had to go through it. So I understand that there can be an extreme physical challenge put on us. But having said that, many times we get into extreme physical depletion because of our pride. What do I mean? I mean we won't ask for help. 
I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And that is pride that drives us to, to work, to work, to work, and then all of a sudden we crash. And we go, I don't know what happened. Well, I think I do, and I think it's simpler than you might understand. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. So he arose. He arose after he rested. He ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, we don't know exactly where that is. It could be the place in Mount Sinai, where, or the place we call Mount Sinai earlier, um, you know, the place where God gave the Ten Commandments. But he, he went 40 days. He traveled for 40 days. I don't know if it was a 40-day journey in one direction or if he was you know, uh, moving through the wilderness a little bit at a time for 40 days. But he moved away from there. Verse 9. And he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And, and the Lord said to him, What are you doing here? <laughs> What's wrong with you? What are you doing here, Elijah? And so Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of your children, your, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Now earlier, that servant of the king told him, there's 150 guys that I've saved. What does he say here? I'm the only prophet left. Verse 11. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Let's stop there just a second. I'm the only one. I'm the only one who's been so dedicated to you. And now I'm suffering for my dedication. Did Elijah deserve a trial? How many think no? How many think yes? How many are chicken? <laughs> You're just like the people he was talking to earlier. He's right on the fence. No. He didn't do anything. He didn't personally sin to make Jezebel mad at him. In fact, his righteousness made Jezebel mad at him. And yet all of his righteous actions created a new trial. And he doesn't think he deserves it. I alone am left and they're trying to kill me. So now let's go on to verse 11. Then he said, God said to him, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Go out of the cave and stand on the mountain. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave and suddenly a voice came to him and said, 
what are you doing here, Elijah? God said the exact same thing to him again. Why are you here? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you, Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shephat, of of Abel Mahola shall you shall anoint as a prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved seven thousand people in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You know, the answer that God gives him is a little unsatisfying to us because he doesn't. <laughs> He doesn't really flesh out all of the answer. But he does say, look, do you know who I am? I mean, this is God talking to Elijah. What are you doing here? Now, I think part of what he was saying, what are you doing here, is you don't belong here. You're supposed to be up there looking Jezebel straight in the eye. What are you doing here? And then he does this magnificent display of the power of God. And then he says, essentially through that says, remember me? You know, the earthquake, the fire, the wind, the still small voice. He says, I'm still here. Elijah focused so completely on his trial that he failed to see the greatness of God. Now, in in the first part of his ministry... He, he apparently sees the greatness of God. Apparently, all of those things were things he could trust God for. But when his life is directly challenged, somehow he falls apart. And the only thing that I can figure out from that is, his vision got like this. Oh, the queen's going to kill me. The queen's going to kill me. Everybody wants to kill me. There's nobody left. I'm all alone. Ah! My trial, my trial, it's so big, it's so big, it's all I can see. That's the problem. Where's God? Well, you have to set that aside and go, oh, there's God. How did I forget Him? I mean, you know, 20 miles ago, I was on Mount Carmel and God sent down the fire. Whoosh. And now I run 20 miles and the queen challenges me and I go, oh. Now I would submit to you the same thing happens in our Christian life. We trust God for our salvation. That's a big step of faith. We trust God for this and for that and for the other. Lord willing, we, we marry in the Lord. We trust the Lord to bring us that Christian spouse. That's a big thing. And, you know, on and on. Then maybe God brings us a child and we trust, you know, and, but then something comes, and for some reason, we just plain take our eyes off of God, and all we can see is this trial. And when you do that, you will absolutely fall apart like Elijah did. How great is God? I just want to give you a series of things here, and you're familiar with most of them, so I just want to remind you of them. First of all, God is great enough to protect his child 
from every evil. Man, I, I discovered this verse reading the Psalms in my devotional time this week, and it is so great. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Do you get that? The angel of the Lord is all around you. Wow, Elijah completely lost sight of that. Completely lost sight of that. God is great enough to protect his children from every evil. When you face something that's hard, you need to be assured that God will not let you go through something which is not within his plan. He is big enough to protect you if it's his will. Number two, God is great enough to empower his children for every challenge. There is no temptation or test or trial overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. God will not allow you to be overrun, but with that test, he will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is that great. Don't forget it. God is great enough to be consistent in caring for his children. For I am the Lord, I do not change. This is the doctrine of immutability, the immutability of God. God is not capricious. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, you know, there's uh, Derek, uh, I'm going to be nice to him. There's Chuck, I'm going to make him fall down out of his truck. He flips a coin in heaven. Oh, sorry, Chuck, you're losing. God is consistent in the caring for his children. He does whatever they need, whenever they need it, and he is always on a planned program. God is great enough to make good on his word. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, if you don't know this verse, you need to underline it and memorize it and the reference too. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. When you read a truth... When you read a truth like this, whoops. When you read this truth and you say God says he can do he can help me through this. If God says that, you need to understand that God can make good on his word. Now, you're going to have to step up and trust him and walk in a godly way in order for it to happen. But he who calls you is faithful. He will do it. This isn't you trying to put on some religion. This is you taking God's word and saying, I will do what God has said, and when I do it, the Holy Spirit empowers it. And I actually grow and change and become a more godly person. God is great enough to reward his children when they follow him. Do you believe this verse? Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you believe that what is in your life, God has allowed for good, and that he's able to make good out of it? You have to believe that. If you don't, then you have a skewed view of God. God is great enough to create good through every circumstance of life for his children. That's what Romans 8.28 is about. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. This verse does not say that God will do what you think is good every time. But it says that no matter what comes your way, whether it is 
the, uh, the work of Satan to try to derail you, whether it is your sinful flesh making a bad choice, whether it is a testing from God to strengthen your faith, no matter what it is, he is able to make things work together to accomplish some good on his schedule in his plan. But you have to believe that and live that way. The children of Israel, the, the three Hebrew children as we call them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, believed this. When they, the, the wicked king said, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace, going to burn you alive for following God. Look what they said. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, and psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image that I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, O king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't have to... We don't have to be uh, careful in how we answer you. We, we know right away the answer to this dilemma you've posed. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known, O king, that we do not serve your guards, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They said, look, God's going to deliver us one way or the other. But there is no condition under which we are turning our back on God and going the other way. Either God's going to deliver us from you, or God is going to take our lives now and take us on to heaven, and that will be just fine as well. (sighs) Elizabeth Elliot, in a book called Loving God with All Your Mind, said this, With these truths in mind, we don't need to use up our time and energy trying to reconcile some of the harsher aspects of reality, like cancer, airplane crashes, and drunk drivers who injure others. We can instead, by faith and by His grace, acknowledge that His ways are not our ways. Friends, God is at work. The question is, do you see him for who he is? You know, I have three pair of prescription glasses. I have sunglasses for when I'm driving. I have computer glasses because I sit about that far away from the computer screen. And with bifocals, I have to kind of go like this, you know. So I have special glasses for the computer. I have regular glasses. Without my glasses, you are all beautiful. Beauty queens and uh, muscle beach kings. I can't see anything clearly without my glasses. And I would submit to you today that if you are looking at your life without the lens of Scripture that tells us who God is, you're not going to see things clearly. And the consequence for you is going to be tough. I want to challenge you today to get your, your image your focus of God sharpened up so that when the difficulties come, and they will come, whether they be small or large, that you can trust in Him who is great enough to take care of you through it all. Heavenly Father, 
You are so great. We praise you today. We honor you. We thank you. Help us to see you for who you are and to trust in you day by day, week by week. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. All for you. May all that's inside my heart and my mind be all for you.